Hello friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. As I'm sure you know by now, Brock West has been revivifying some of the old podcasts from the Corbett Report archives, making them into videos so that we can represent them to the public, because a lot of the old Corbett Report work is no less relevant today, some of it even more relevant or seemingly relevant than it was when it was first posted. One example of that, which I hope you have seen in recent weeks, was the recently re-released episode 86 of the Corporate Report podcast from 2009 on medical martial law. If you have not seen that uh, that clip from that podcast that was made into a video by Brock West, please do so, and I'll put the link in the show notes so you can check that out. Today we're going to be revisiting the archives, but in fact we're going to be pulling something out from even earlier in the Corbett Report history, namely episode 60 of the Corbett Report podcast on a bioterror false flag. Extremely important information. It was important back then in 2008 when this podcast was first released in the midst of the war on terror paradigm and fretting about the Al-Qaeda phenomenon. It is, as I say, no less relevant today, perhaps even more so now that we are being introduced to the new scare paradigm, the uh, the scaradigm, if you will, the biological false flag, the biological warfare, the biological agent uh, scenario is no less relevant today. In fact, maybe more so. So I will leave this podcast. Uh, the visuals, of course, have been added by Brock, but the audio is the same as it was presented 12 years ago. Uh, I think this information is extremely relevant. And as always, the show notes will be there with all the links to all of the information. So please use this information, take it on board. And I think just as the medical martial law uh, episode had to be updated for in light of recent events, I think in light of recent events, we'll have to update this podcast and take a look at the new biological scaradigm from this per perspective and see what other cookie crumbs along the trail have been laid in the past 12 years. But without further ado, here is episode 60 of The Corporate Report, represented for your viewing pleasure. On day six of the smallpox epidemic, the White House confirmed that federal government officials and military personnel are being vaccinated. 300 people have died. At least 2,000 are infected with smallpox. Smallpox symptoms are being seen in 15 states, also in Canada, Mexico and England. The U.S. smallpox vaccine supply continues to shrink as officials try to stretch limited stocks to cover the entire nation. An official announcement regarding the remaining vaccine inventory is expected later today. Struggles to get vaccinated led to violence in some cities. Profound economic losses are crippling the nation. In Oklahoma alone, economic experts project severe losses in the state's multi-billion dollar agricultural commodities market. Still, no group claims responsibility for unleashing the deadly smallpox virus. But NCN has learned that Iraq may have provided the technology behind the attack to terrorist groups based in Afghanistan. Welcome to episode 60 of the Corbett Report, a bioterror false flag. No, there's no need to panic. What you have just heard was, in fact, a fake news report. It was made in conjunction with Dark Winter 2001. Dark Winter was a bioterror exercise organized by the Center for Strategic and International Studies and held at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. on June 22nd and 23rd of 2001. This exercise brought together senior former officials from various U.S. government administrations to play the role of National Security Council members reacting to a bioterror release. In order to give a heightened sense of realism to the simulation, these fake news reports were concocted and screened by the members participating in the exercise. Of course, as listeners to the Corbett Report will remember from episode 20, drills can often be used to implement the very thing that they are simulating, as was the case on 9-11. Another way these drills are used is to prepare the public psychologically to accept the very things that are happening in these exercises. Numerous bioterror exercises and simulations and drills taking place across the country on a weekly basis will help to make the threat of bioterror a very real one in the public mind, however unlikely such a release actually is. 
This is part of a conditioning process that is going on on numerous levels of our society, taking place throughout the media, and of course, in Hollywood. And you see a movie like I Am Legend, uh, you know, based on the 1950s book that's been a mega man and a bunch of others. And it's all about martial law, crackdowns on cities, how everybody died. They even admit that it's a cure for cancer virus that goes wild. It's a cancer virus that, 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 that makes you immune to cancer. And uh, then it you know, uh, kills 90% of the world's population. And then uh, 10% uh, is left, but only 2% is immune. The other 8% you know, turn into just psychopathic killers. Just absolutely crazed. Uh, but see, it's not big in Hollywood with this stuff. No, you just get diabetes, you just get Crohn's disease, you just get cancers all over and you just die. There's nothing fancy about it. You know, you, you're not going to be bench pressing 800 pounds like I am legend when you're flopping around dying in your house. And the government's running around posing as saviors. And the military and police and firemen think they're trying to save people as they're dropping dead. And as they get the news that mama and daddy and their wife and their kids are all dead back in Tennessee or Texas or New York. And I know you're going to cry your guts out years from now if the globalists do this. And a lot of you are going to wake up at that point. That's the big thing we got going for us is that uh, the globalists are probably just going to go ahead and do all this the way things look right now. And uh, people can self-censor and not talk about 9-11, and they can self-censor and try to be mainline. That's fine. You'll be flopping around dying. Uh, but uh, when all that happens, and when you're burying your children, God forbid, <laughs> just trying to get this, you know, get real here with you, then you're going to remember old Alex Jones. He'll probably be long gone then. And uh, you'll remember and go, man, that guy said all this was going to happen. And yes, uh they clearly have it in the cards. They've said we're going to have a bio-release. Bush has said, I don't know what happened under him or Hillary or whoever else comes. The point is, it's on the table. Now, a list of Hollywood movies in recent years that envision such an apocalyptic post-bio-terror release scenario would be too lengthy to make here. But suffice it to say, numerous other researchers have pointed out this trend in Hollywood predictive programming. Granted that there is a concerted effort to condition the public to accept the reality of this bioterror threat, and also the reality of a coming pandemic which is going to annihilate so much of the population, what basis is there to think that there's anything sinister behind this? Isn't it reasonable to assume, after all, that the terrorists who would slam planes into buildings on September 11th would also be plotting bioterror attacks which would be even more deadly? Well, once again, it's not difficult to ascertain that this plot goes well beyond some bearded men in caves working with satellite phones and laptops on the other side of the world to coordinate a shadowy group of international terrorists who were, in fact, created by the CIA in the 1970s. No, indeed, the plot runs much deeper than that, and an indication of that came several years ago. In the Globe and Mail, on Saturday, May 4th, 2002, this article. Scientists' deaths are under the microscope. Quote, It's a tale only the best conspiracy theorist could dream up. Eleven microbiologists mysteriously dead over the span of just five months. Some of them world leaders in developing weapons-grade biological plagues. Others the best in figuring out how to stop millions from dying because of biological weapons. Still others... Experts in the theory of bioterrorism. Throw in a few Russian defectors, a few nervy U.S. biotech companies, a deranged assassin or two, a bit of Elvis, a couple of Satanists, a subtle hint of espionage, a big whack of imagination, and the plot is complete, if a bit reminiscent of James Bond. The first three died in the space of just over a week in November. Benito Quay, 52, was an expert in infectious diseases and cellular biology at the Miami Medical School. Police originally suspected that he had been beaten on November 12th in a carjacking in the medical school's parking lot. Strangely enough, though, his body showed no signs of a beating. Doctors then began to suspect a stroke. Just four days after Dr. Quay fell unconscious came the mysterious disappearance of Don Wiley, 57, 
one of the foremost microbiologists in the United States. Dr. Wiley of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Harvard University was an expert on how the immune system responds to viral attacks, such as the classic doomsday plagues of HIV, Ebola, and influenza. He had just bought tickets to take his son to Graceland the following day. Police found his rental car on a bridge outside Memphis, Tennessee. His body was later found in the Mississippi River. Forensic experts said he may have had a dizzy spell and have fallen off the bridge. Just five days after that, the world-class microbiologist and high-profile Russian defector Vladimir Pasichnik, 64, fell dead. The pathologist who did the autopsy, and who also happened to be associated with Britain's spy agency, concluded he died of a stroke. Dr. Pasichnik, who defected to the United Kingdom in 1989, played a huge role in Russian biowarfare and helped to figure out how to modify cruise missiles to deliver the agents of mass biological destruction. The next two deaths came four days apart in December. Robert Schwartz, 57, was stabbed and slashed with what police believe was a sword in his farmhouse in Leesburg, Virginia. His daughter, who identifies herself as a pagan high priestess, and several of her fellow pagans have been charged. Dr. Schwartz was an expert in DNA sequencing and pathogenic microorganisms who worked at the Center for Innovative Technology in Herndon, Virginia. Four days later, Guyan Van Set, 44, died at work in Geelong, Australia, in a laboratory accident. He entered an airlocked storage lab and died from exposure to nitrogen. Other scientists at the Animal Diseases Facility of the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization had just come to fame for discovering a virulent strain of mousepox, which could be modified to affect smallpox. The Russian microbiologist Viktor Korshinov, 56, an expert in intestinal bacteria of children around the world, was bashed over the head near his home in Moscow. Five days later, the British microbiologist Ian Langford, 40, was found dead in his home near Norwich, England, naked from the waist down and wedged under a chair. He was an expert in environmental risks and disease. Two weeks later, two prominent microbiologists died in San Francisco. Tanya Holzmayer, 46, a Russian who moved to the U.S. in 1989, focused on the part of the human molecular structure that could be affected best by medicine. She was killed by fellow microbiologist Guyang Huang, 38, who shot her seven times when she opened the door to a pizza delivery. Then he shot himself. The final two deaths came one day after the other in March. David Wynne Williams, 55, a respected astrobiologist with the British Antarctic Survey that studied the habits of microbes that might survive in outer space, died in a freak road accident near his home in Cambridge, England. He was hit by a car while he was jogging. The following day, Stephen Mosto, 63, known as Dr. Flu for his experience in treating influenza and a noted expert in bioterrorism, died when the airplane he was piloting crashed near Denver. So what does any of it mean? Statistically, what are the chances, wondered a prominent North American microbiologist, reached last night at an international meeting of infectious disease specialists in Chicago? End quote. Now that article gives a very good overall summary of the situation as it stood in early 2002, but since then, of course, the microbiologist deaths have continued to pile up, although indeed not so much in recent years. To follow more on the story, you can take a look at articles like The Mysterious Deaths of Top Microbiologists at WhatReallyHappened.com or Microbiologist Death Toll Mounts as Connection to DynCorp, Hadron, Promise Software, and Disease Research Emerge from Michael Rupert's From the Wilderness reporting team on Rents.com. Again, please take a look at all of the articles, videos, documents, and other material cited in today's episode by going to CorbettReport.com and looking at today's documentation list. Certainly, for those who realize that 9-11 was an inside job, there is something to worry about in the idea of a bioterrorism false flag, which may or may not be on the horizon. Looking to get more information about the likelihood of such an attack and the vectors that it might take, I recently contacted Mike Rivero. Mike Rivero is the host of What Really Happened Radio on GCN, and also the webmaster of whatreallyhappened.com, a website that's been around since the mid-1990s, 
and provides links to excellent stories and information from around the web on a daily basis. Mike Rivero himself is a keen researcher and has a vast knowledge of current events, and I would suggest you check out his radio show and his website, whatreallyhappened.com. I called into his program last week to get his thoughts on the possibility of a bioterrorism false flag event. Meanwhile, we're going to go to the phones. We've got James in Japan. Konnichiwa, James. Genki desu ka? Uh, genki desu. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that you speak Japanese. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for taking my call today, Mr. Rivero. Uh, I'm doing some research for my podcast right now at CorbettReport.com, and I wanted to draw on your encyclopedic knowledge of news and current events to ask your opinion on uh, a certain aspect of the situation that's developing and that's that uh, right now, of course, the general public is finally waking up to the gigantic bank heist that's taking place right now in the uh, Treasury through the, the banker bailout bill. And as public reaction to this uh, bill starts to increase and as the public anger increases, I'm wondering if you see this as uh, perhaps one indication that there might be a, a new false flag attack on the horizon. And if so... What indications have you seen that that type of false flag attack might be a biological agent release? Well, let me answer the second part of that first. I think any false flag attack, in order to have a chance of working in a nation where we're already numbed by endless replays of jet planes crashing into buildings, I think a biological attack... Uh, brings it to a new level of terror because it's not just happening in a city far away. If you have anthrax dusting in five or six cities across America, then the media will say, you know, it could be happening to you right now. Even this moment as you're breathing, you could be breathing in the spores and not know it to make the terror seem much more immediate and real. So I would say that, uh, you know, if, if they're going to try another false flag attack, it's probably going to be uh, a biological threat. It's probably going to be anthrax because there's no secondary communicability with anthrax, so they don't have to run the risk of a runaway uh, contagion that would actually cause more harm to the country than they're planning to do. Uh, but that being said, I'm, I'm less concerned that one is really going to happen. I'm sure it's being planned and wargamed out, and they're thinking about it and, and preparing for it, but I think when it gets right down to it, uh, they're going to look around and they're going to look at how few people buy the official story of 9-11, and they're going to sit there and say, you know, th there's a real chance we could pull this off, and they're going to know immediately that it's not the dead guy Osama bin Laden or it's not uh, uh, the Muslims and stuff. All it's going to take is one really embarrassing mistake. I mean, the last time when they when they actually arrested Mossad agents right on 9-11 itself, they were able to keep the wraps on that. Now you've got a very skeptical and a very angry population. It's a much, much different environment in which to try and pull off a swindle like that. They might try and do it. I can't rule that out, but I think anybody who's objectively looking at the uh, the possibilities of success of such an operation has to be saying, you know, the, the odds are not good that we're going to be able to succeed in pulling this off. So I'm, you know, I, I'm sure it's been war-gamed out, and they've thought about it and maybe even made some plans for it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that hopefully cooler heads will prevail, and, and they're not going to try something, because it would be really stupid, I think, at this point for them to try. Well, I certainly, I certainly hope that you're correct in that assessment, and I, I certainly would like to think that the 9-11 Truth Movement has gone a long way towards exposing that tool of false flag terror and hopefully breaking it. But um, in the event that that isn't, in fact, the case, and they are, in fact, um, perhaps planning some type of false flag event, what do you think about the list of dead microbiologists, and how do you think that plays into this story? Do you think that's a red herring, or is it an important issue? Um, I think it's an important issue for two reasons, and, and we're getting into the kind of hypothetical situation here, but one of two cases applies. Either these are people who were aware of the development of a synthetic disease organism to be used for this kind of a biological attack, or these are simply the people who might be most able to effectively and rapidly put together some kind of a cure or defense to something, and they had to be gotten out of the way. Uh, but we've seen, you know, the, the execution of microbiologists has kind of faded lately, and either we've run out of them or somebody changed their mind about what they were going to try. In any event, if they do use anthrax as their pathogen of choice, that's kind of a known quantity, and I'm not sure what the microbiologists uh, would have really had to do with that. If, on the other hand, they're using some kind of artificial synthetic 
uh, flu virus. They're going to call it the bird flu. But you remember about 10 years ago, they were up in the Arctic uh, digging up victims of the Spanish flu and trying to rebuild that virus. And everybody was saying, why are you doing that? Because everybody here who survived, we're immune to it. But they were up there digging it up and playing with it. You know, that might be somebody where they'd say, well, we can't have these microbiologists running around because they might blow the whistle on what this disease really is. And they might be able to come up with a cure and and, and, end the panic. You know, that's a worst case scenario. And it's all theory. And I don't have any evidence to support it. But those are the two possibilities that suggest themselves. All right. Well, thank you very much for that information, Mr. Rivero. Well, you're welcome. And uh, have yourself a good night and, and good luck with your podcast. We'll be talking to you soon. Aloha. Thank you. So although Mike Rivero does not acknowledge the immediacy of the threat, he does acknowledge the fact that future false flag events are very likely to be bioterrorist releases. Well, he mentioned two possibilities in that clip. The first, and what he seemed to think was the most likely, was the anthrax attack. Now, of course, in recent months, the inside job nature of the 2001 anthrax attacks, which was directly responsible for the hurried passage through Congress of the Patriot Act, which eviscerated the Constitution and Bill of Rights in a time of mass hysteria, was blown wide open. The FBI's case against Dr. Stephen Hatfield having broken down and the FBI having lost a lawsuit filed by Dr. Hatfield for defamation of character in the way that they attempted to convict him in the media as a person of interest in the case, despite not having a case against him, was deflected by the fact that the FBI eventually managed to find their man and close the case, shortly after he turned up dead in a government medical institution. Yes, the ridiculous case against Dr. Hatfield was replaced by the even more ridiculous case against Dr. Ivins, who just happens to be conveniently dead and thus unable to defend himself. Of course, for more information about the inside job nature of the 2001 anthrax attacks, and the fact that Dr. Ivins, of course, was not the lone genius mastermind cooking up this incredibly complex, weaponized anthrax in a bucket in his basement, you might turn to articles such as this one from Infowars.net, Government Biological Weapons Legislator, Anthrax Inside Job Cover-Up Continuing. And of course, that article, which again you can find from the documentation list at CorbettReport.com, talks about Dr. Francis A. Boyle, a man who helped write the laws with regards to terrorism and was responsible for drafting the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, who has consistently stated that the anthrax attacks could only have come from government sources a position that he reaffirmed in August 2008 as the Dr. Ivan's fiasco unfolded. But what indications are there that a fresh anthrax attack might be on the horizon? For that information, I turn to an incredibly well-researched thread on the PrisonPlanet.com forum started by Mark Century. The thread is entitled Bioterror False Flag Watch, Anthrax and Avian Flu, and many of the articles that I'm going to cite in the remainder of today's episode come from this thread, so I suggest that my listeners check it out. The first document cited in that thread is a startling declaration from the Department of Health and Human Services from October 1st, 2008. It's entitled HHS Secretary's Declaration for Utilization of Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act for Anthrax Countermeasures. The summary of this declaration reads, quote, Declaration pursuant to Section 319F-3 of the Public Health Service Act, 42 U.S.C. Section 247D-60, to to provide targeted liability protections for anthrax countermeasures based on a credible risk that the threat of exposure to Bacillus anthracis and the resulting disease constitutes a public health emergency. End quote. In effect, the Department of Health and Human Services has declared an emergency situation for anthrax exposure that started on October 1, 2008, and does not end, according to the declaration itself, until 2015. The legal significance of the declaration does not make itself known until well into this lengthy and needlessly wordy document. But in effect, what it is stating is is that because of this health emergency, 
manufacturers of drugs, including vaccines and antimicrobials, which would be used in preventing and treating anthrax exposure, would be legally immune from any lawsuits deriving from the ill effects of the medications themselves. That is to say, if these vaccines or other antimicrobials and antitoxins were to prove in themselves harmful, these manufacturers would of course be legally off the hook. On the same day that this declaration was made, in October 1, 2008, a pilot program was announced in Minneapolis, St. Paul, for letter carriers to deliver emergency anthrax medication to all households in the city in the event of an anthrax bioterror release. According to articles, this program was previously successfully tested in Seattle, Philadelphia, and Boston. This is on the heels of a San Diego Post Office article that exposes an anthrax emergency drill which recently took place in San Diego. Once again, we find the public being conditioned to accept that an anthrax attack is imminent and we are in a heightened state of alert at the moment, with a new emergency declaration having been recently declared. Now, of course, one angle on all of this, including the declaration itself, is that these companies being provided this legal immunity for their vaccines and medications might just be part of big pharma corruption seeking to take advantage of hysteria caused in the media by this terror threat. Now that angle is covered by a raw story article entitled Well-Connected Drug Company Obtains Anthrax Vaccine Contracts Despite Side Effects. This article reads in part, quote, Two former high-ranking health officials with close ties to the Bush administration helped a Michigan-based pharmaceutical company secure sole-source, multi-million-dollar federal contracts for the purchase of its controversial anthrax vaccine, a raw story investigation has found. Last month, Emergent Biosolutions announced that the Department of Health and Human Services intended to purchase more than 18 million doses of its Biothrax vaccine for the Strategic National Stockpile. The strategic stockpile is set aside for civilian use during a large-scale emergency, such as a bioterrorism attack or natural disaster. Once finalized, the contract will be the largest of its kind for emergence anthrax vaccine. Biothrax is the only FDA-licensed vaccine for anthrax in the United States. The Pentagon has used it for the military's mandatory anthrax vaccination program for the last 10 years, though not without problems. Although the military continues to publicly claim the vaccine is safe and effective, thousands of soldiers suffered adverse reactions, ranging from mild to severe. End quote. Indeed, the anthrax vaccine being stockpiled by the U.S. government to be used in the event of a bioterror release is not an uncontroversial medicine. Last fall, the U.S. military reinstituted mandatory vaccination against anthrax for America's armed services for troops likely to be deployed overseas. But many service members question whether any country actually has weaponized anthrax, and they worry that the real enemy is the vaccine itself. The exclusive story of one service member who has refused the anthrax vaccine and the controversy over its safety is tonight's Weekend Journal. I'm more worried about this vaccine than I'm worried about bullets. Stationed overseas in a combat unit, this soldier told CBS News he refused the mandatory series of six shots after military buddies who got them died. Nor does he believe there is a real threat of an anthrax attack on U.S. troops. I've never in my military career ever seen anybody uh, come in contact with anthrax. Uh, I've never seen anybody taken from the battlefield because of anthrax. I just do not see the legitimacy in the anthrax shot. He asked CBS not to reveal his identity in order not to further aggravate the commanders who will decide his future. After 15 years in the military, he could be court-martialed. I think my career is over. I mean, I'm, I've pretty much uh, came to that, uh, that conclusion that my career is gonna be over no matter what. I've been diagnosed with chronic fibromyalgia chronic fatigue. Former Navy man Luis Hernandez says there is cause for concern. 
A 51-year-old New Yorker, he says he got sick after getting four anthrax vaccine shots in 2003 and was finally discharged from the military last month. I have a cyst in my head. I have white matter stuff in the front of my skull. Hernandez's medical records list symptoms including migraines, cognitive dysfunction, and chronic joint and muscle pain. He says Veterans Administration doctors told him he had a mystery illness. Now he's participating in a new study of the effects of the anthrax vaccine conducted by the Vaccine Healthcare Center, a little-known department at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Well, they told me that the symptoms that I had, they had noted in other service members that had had anthrax vaccines. And... Uh, that just, they just didn't know the remedy how to fix this. Anthrax vaccination for members of the military first became mandatory in 1998, though in 2004 a federal court halted the involuntary vaccinations, saying the vaccine had not been properly approved by the FDA. The FDA gave final approval to the vaccine in 2005, and last fall the Defense Department announced the resumption of the mandatory program. According to the Pentagon, some 1.5 million service members have received the shots. We know that anthrax is deadly, and it's potentially that they could be exposed. Colonel Randall Anderson, director of the Military Vaccine Agency, says the vaccination program is essential. We have a licensed vaccine. I, I think that we deserve it to our service members to protect them. And defense officials say while there are side effects, the vaccine is safe. All the different uh, independent uh, committees that have looked at this vaccine have said the anthrax vaccine is as safe as any other safe vaccine. But the Government Accountability Office says that's impossible to say because the vaccine's long-term safety has not been investigated and data on short-term reactions are limited. The GAO says that 84% of vaccine recipients experience adverse reactions. And even material by the Institute of Medicine given to CBS News by Colonel Anderson says the vaccine is reasonably safe but relatively crude by current standards and calls urgently for a new and modernized vaccine. And the manufacturer's own insert in the vaccine warns of deaths associated with it. The Pentagon says it is not aware of any fatalities. No deaths? No deaths associated with this anthrax vaccine. Still, this soldier is asking one thing of his country, good science to protect him and his comrades, not just a shot in the dark. There's been more complications from the anthrax vaccine than there has been from anthrax contact. I mean, that, and that is fact. So, I, you know, I don't see what justification they have for making this mandatory. And a personal disclosure, at the beginning of the Iraq War, I was one of dozens of journalists embedded with American forces, in my case, the 4th Infantry Division. I received the anthrax vaccination and did not have any adverse reaction. So once again, we have pharmaceutical manufacturers continuing to dispense medicines that they know are harmful, have very serious side effects, and in some cases even kill those that receive it. I encourage all of my listeners to do more research on the anthrax vaccines, as well as other cases of big pharma literally killing their customers, such as when Bayer 100% absolutely knew that their Factor Eight hemophiliac treatment contained HIV, and they continued to sell it in foreign markets until they were eventually caught, and some of the members of Bayer went to jail, just like many of the heads of Bayer's progenitor, I.G. Farben, were tried as war criminals after World War II for their help in supporting the Nazis. Also, I once again encourage my listeners to take a look at that article on globalresearch.ca by William Engdahl about the Doomsday Seed Vault in Svalbard and the information presented in that article about the tetanus vaccination program administered by the WHO that just happened to sterilize the vast majority of the women who were subjected to that sterilization vaccination program. Again, there is a pattern here that is developing that goes far beyond the mere profit motive. And there is an underlying ideology espoused by many of the people who own the companies and are in a position of power to direct Big Pharma's activities from the very top, who would like to see a vast majority of the human population eliminated from the planet Earth. But perhaps that's just conspiracy theory. So we will cover this again and again and again in future episodes of the Corbett Report podcast. But for now, let's turn to another aspect of the bioterror false flag possibility, that is bird flu. 
Now, of course, the possibility of a bird flu pandemic has been being hyped in the media for years, and it all rests on a strain of avian flu known as H5N1, which has so far resulted in the death of 380 or so people around the world. Hardly a staggering sum, but one that for some reason the Bush administration decided was enough to warrant a $4 billion expenditure by the Department of Health and Human Services to prepare for what has been called officially, quote, the inevitable pandemic. But what is bird flu, and what are the chances of it becoming a pandemic phenomenon like the Spanish flu of 1918? For that, let's turn to a part of a presentation by Dr. Alma Ott, a doctor in nutrition who has been researching the development of the bird flu scare. His presentation is quite lengthy and gets into some very interesting details about the emergence of Spanish flu in 1918 and how it's connected to both John D. Rockefeller and the vaccination programs underwent by the U.S. military, the first mandatory vaccinations of its kind, back in World War I. Again, that's some very interesting material and should be looked at by all of my listeners. But I'm going to play a section of the presentation in which Dr. Alma Ott talks about bird flu and whether or not we should really be scared of this inevitable pandemic. So let's look exactly, what exactly is the so-called bird flu? Let's look at it scientifically for just a minute. The bird flu is simply a slang term, folks, given to a specific strain of influenza virus. Specifically in biochemical terms, biological terms, is called H5N1 because of its RNA and DNA structure. The H5N1 virus, folks, is indeed unique to birds. Virologists have long determined, and now this is going back to the 1910s, 1920s, that H5N1 is indeed unique only to birds and is found naturally in most wild bird populations. Typically, it's not a problem with birds. It has zero mortality to the bird population and is absolutely, let me emphasize this, absolutely is not typically passed on to human hosts. Folks, it's only when the bird populations become overstressed due to either massive contamination of their environment or the overpopulation of a bird, bird flock does the cellular terrain of the bird flock change. The internal workings of the birds as a whole change. When the birds become stressed, their internal terrain changes, then this H5N1 virus can in fact become dangerous or even lethal to the bird population. When the bird dies, folks, this virus, in fact, evolves into a fungal parasite. Let me emphasize, a virus is the seed, the spore of a fungus. That's what a virus is, as opposed to a bacteria, which is a living one-cell organism, okay? A virus is the is this microscopic seed or spores of specific funguses. So when the virus uh, evolves and uh, begins to affect a whole bird population, it helps Mother Nature to cull the flock to bring it back into the balance that is necessary to keep the bird itself, the bird genes itself intact. The fungal parasite that evolves from the influenza, H5N1, really helps to rapidly decompose the bird as well. It's part of nature's plan. The virus and the fungus uh, has been with the bird population since the day they first began to swim and fly. It's part of the system, part of the ecosystem of nature. Should not be feared, should not be something that we should fear as a, as a country, as a nation. Well, if the bird flu is indeed part of the natural life cycle of birds, and really poses no threat to humanity under any normal circumstances, 
why has the media latched onto and the government promoted the pandemic flu hype over the last few years? Well, of course, the profit motive comes into it as always, and that can easily be seen by the fact that it is a matter of public record that Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense, in fact has stocks in the company that owns Tamiflu, which was for years promoted as the solution to a flu pandemic, as the wonder drug that could reduce the effects of the flu. It's not difficult to see, therefore, how someone of Donald Rumsfeld's stature would be able to use his position and influence to create a media hype to, in fact, increase his own personal wealth. And I think most people can understand that base level of corruption. But the horrifying truth is that there might be a much darker motive to this promotion of the pandemic flu hysteria. We start to get an indication of that at a site called sunshine-project.org. This is a website that is no longer being updated, but for years provided key information about the U.S. biological weapons research programs that continue to this very day. On the 9th of October 2003, they released an article entitled Recreating the Spanish Flu, which talks about U.S. government attempts to resurrect and study the incredibly fatal Spanish flu of 1918, which caused a global epidemic and killed an estimated 20 to 40 million people worldwide, including young men and women in the prime of their youth. From this article, Recreating the Spanish Flu, we obtain the following passage. Quote, Attempts to recover the Spanish flu virus date to the 1950s, when scientists unsuccessfully tried to revive the virus from victims buried in the permafrost of Alaska. In the mid-1990s, Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger from the U.S. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology started to screen preserved tissue samples from 1918 influenza victims. It appears that this work was not triggered by a search for flu treatments or the search for a new biowarfare agent, but by a rather simple motivation. Taubenberger and his team were just able to do it. In previous experiments, they had developed a new technique to analyze DNA in old preserved tissues and were now looking for new applications. The 1918 flu was by far and away the most interesting thing we could think of, explained Taubenberger, the reason why he started to unravel the secrets of one of the most deadliest viruses known to humankind. The project did not stop at sequencing the genome of the deadly 1918 strain. The Armed Forces Institute of Pathology teamed up with a microbiologist from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Together, they started to reconstruct the Spanish flu. In a first attempt, they combined gene fragments from a standard laboratory influenza strain with one 1918 gene. They infected mice with this chimera, and it turned out that the 1918 gene made the virus less dangerous for mice. In a second experiment, published in October 2002, the scientists were successful in creating a virus with two 1918 genes. The virus was much more deadly to mice than other constructs containing genes from contemporary influenza virus. This experiment is only one step away from taking the 1918 demon entirely out of the bottle and bringing the Spanish flu back to life. The scientists were aware of the dangers of their creation. The experiments were conducted under high biosafety conditions at a laboratory at the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Athens, Georgia. Possible hostile use of their work was an issue considered by the scientists. The available molecular techniques could be used for the purpose of bioterrorism. There is no sound scientific reason to conduct these experiments. There may be many reasons for the individual scientists to work on this project, not least the scientific prestige. The Spanish flu subject matter practically guaranteed a series of publications in prestigious journals. From an arms control perspective, it appears to be particularly sensitive if a military research institution embarks on a project that aims at constructing more dangerous pathogens. If Jeffrey Taubenberger worked in a Chinese, Russian, or Iranian laboratory, his work might well be seen as the smoking gun of a biowarfare program. End quote. Now that article is, of course, chilling, because, of course, the 1918 Spanish flu 
was one of the worst pandemics in global history. And it's extremely disturbing to hear that the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and other army researchers are so intent on reviving this terrible influenza strain. Perhaps there is a link between a biological warfare program developed influenza strain and the current media hype about bird flu. That information can be garnered from an incredibly well-researched article by the always informative William Engdahl, again from globalresearch.ca, this time from August 2008. This article is entitled, The Pentagon's Alarming Project, Avian Flu Biowar Vaccine. It reads in part, quote, The U.S. government has been financing the development of a vaccine against H5N1 on a fast-track basis since 2004. Sanofi Pasteur in Swiftwater, Pennsylvania, a subsidiary of the giant French pharmaceutical firm, the third largest in the world, manufactured an inactivated vaccine made from an H5N1 virus isolated in Southeast Asia in 2004. Sanofi Pasteur, part of the French-based Sanofi Aventis Group, was awarded a contract by the U.S. government's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, part of the National Institute of Health, NAID, to manufacture the H5N1 vaccine in May 2004. In April 2007, the FDA approved the Sanofi Pasteur vaccine for H5N1, even though one year before the FDA cited Sanofi Pasteur for producing contaminated flu zone vaccines. The FDA approved H5N1 vaccine is itself apparently not really effective in event of a human to human outbreak of avian flu. On announcing its approval, the FDA stated two injections given 28 days apart may provide limited protection if a pandemic occurs. About 45% of people who got the vaccine in a study developed an immune response to the virus. Until now, H5N1 has not mutated into a form that can easily spread from person to person. Is that what the researchers at Sanofi Pasteur and various labs under contract to the U.S. government are engaged in? If so, it would be classified top secret, clearly. The respected British magazine New Scientist commented, If H5N1 does mutate, it is unclear if vaccines developed now would still work against a pandemic strain. Manufacturers could tailor a new vaccine to that strain, but current production methods takes months. The magazine noted that research on the Sanofi vaccine was conducted by the National Institute of Health as part of the U.S. government's efforts to prepare for a flu pandemic. The salient question is whether they prepare for a flu pandemic or whether they prepare a flu pandemic. Why is the U.S. government spending hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to stockpile this H5N1 vaccine, which likely would not work against such a pandemic outbreak? On July 2, 2008, the London Daily Telegraph newspaper reported three Polish doctors and six nurses are facing criminal prosecution after a number of homeless people died following medical trials for a vaccine to the H5N1 bird flu virus. The report added that the medical staff from the northern town of Grudziads were being investigated over medical trials on as many as 350 homeless and poor people last year, which prosecutors say involved an untried vaccine to the highly contagious virus. Authorities claim that the alleged victims received three euros to be tested with what they thought was a conventional flu vaccine, but, according to investigators, was actually an anti-bird flu drug. The director of Agrudziad's homeless center, Mieczysław Waklaski, told a Polish newspaper that last year 21 people from his center died, a figure of well above the average of about eight. On June 16th of this year, Sanofi Pasteur issued the following release announcing that it will donate 60 million doses of H5N1 vaccine to the World Health Organization over three years for the establishment of an H5N1 vaccine global stockpile. The president and CEO of Sanofi Pasteur, Wayne Pisano, said in the release, The H5N1 virus is currently circulating in some of the poorest regions of the world, and an outbreak of pandemic influenza would most likely hit populations living in areas with limited access to vaccines. This donation of H5N1 vaccine aims to address the needs of those most vulnerable populations. 
In addition to supporting the efforts of governments, Pisano added, it is essential that industry collaborates with international organizations such as WHO, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and other global health players. This is the best way to build a stockpile of vaccines for developing nations, ready to be deployed on the ground in the event of a pandemic flu outbreak. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in addition to being a financial supporter of the so-called Doomsday Seed Vault in the Arctic, has dedicated its foundation's billions to support population control, especially in Africa. Among other projects, they, as well as the Rockefeller Foundation, are financing the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, whose head is former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. As the world's leading influenza vaccine manufacturer, Sanofi Pasteur produces approximately half of the influenza vaccine distributed worldwide. In the U.S., it produced more than 40% of the influenza vaccine distributed for the 2007-2008 influenza season. The fact that the U.S. government has revived the 1918 Spanish flu virus to make tests indicate that anything is possible. There are in this world some people not in their right mind. God forbid if it is so in this instance. End quote. Again, I wholeheartedly urge you to take a look at that article in its entirety and get that information out to as many people as you can. We are, in fact, dealing with some extremely dangerous matters in some extremely dangerous political times fraught with economic and financial difficulties and the transfer of power to a new administration in the United States. As last week's episode of the weekly YouTube documentary series put out by the Corbett Report every Wednesday made clear, we are also at risk of the declaration of martial law in the United States. And it's important to note that Executive Order 13295, relating to certain quarantinable communicable diseases, was modified in April 2005 to specifically indicate that, quote, influenza caused by novel or re-emergent influenza viruses that are causing or have the potential to cause a pandemic, end quote, would be sufficient grounds for the United States to start the forcible quarantine of its own citizens. Again, it's not difficult to see how a bioterror false flag event could benefit those at the very top. But the very thought of recreating the Spanish flu, which killed 20 to 40 million people worldwide, as some sort of bioweapons agent in some ploy for political power, is again difficult for the average non-psychopathic person to get their mind around. It's important to take a step back and look at the true end game of the people who are puppeteering this system and how it could possibly even be imagined that such bioterror threats would be wittingly unleashed by governments against their own populations. <laughs> 